Today's speaker is someone I'm excited to have on this podcast. The concept of humanist technologist is a concept he spoke about early in the 90s. Since then, he brought it to every role and job that he had. He brought it also to his role as the president of Rhode Island School of Design, one of the U.S. most prestigious art and design school. His name is Dr. John Maida. You want to listen to this episode. Let's start. We are being told to choose between the left and right brain, between studying art and engineering, between creative and analytical thinking. Our society tells us that art and business are not connected. But what if society is wrong? What if it misleading us? The good news is that understanding what art is can bring us to a new revelation. Art does matter in innovation, technology, and entrepreneurship. And with the help of this podcast and its guests, you as well will learn that art is not an object. Art is a mindset. You are listening to the Artian Podcast with me, Nir Hindi. Hey, podcast listeners. Thanks for coming back. My name is Nir and I'm the founder of The Artian, a creative consultancy and training company that applies an art mindset in business environment. Why, you may ask? Because, as today's speaker, Dr. John Maida said, and I quote, Art and design are positioned to transform our economy in the 21st century like science and technology did in the last century. Dr. Maida is an accomplished artist, designer, educator, and business leader. He was Data Visualization Research Director at MIT Media Lab, Board of Directors at Sonos and Cooper UA Design Museum. He was also a partner at Silicon Valley venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins, Head of Design and Inclusion at Automatic. And wait, there is more. He is the author of five books and his writing interviews or talks include The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, TED, BBC, World Economic Forum, CNN, The Economist, Forbes, and many more. He also has many honors. Some of them include three honorary doctorate degrees. He is the Time Best Twitter 140, White House National Design Award, Fast Company Master of Innovation, LinkedIn Top 10 US Influencer. Trust me, I could have continued. John is a very accomplished professional. But as you will see, he is a very humble and down-to-earth person. And I can only be grateful to John taking the time to chat with me about art, artist, design, business, entrepreneurship, and many more. Hey, John, welcome to the Artian Podcast. Glad to be here. John, you are an artist, designer, technologist, venture capitalist, educator, and business executive, and range of topics to chat with you about are endless. But obviously, my interest leans toward your creative background and mainly your artistic experience. Now, I don't know if the listeners know, but you exhibited around the world, including London, New York, Madrid, and Paris. I actually have a book of one of the exhibitions you participated in 2008. Speaking about souls and machines, your work is in uh, the permanent collection of the MoMA and the San Francisco Museum of Art, the Cartier Foundation, and many others. But before the arts, uh, you study computer uh, science or computer engineering. And there is one moment that I think that's also the moment that kind of spoke to me. I remember in third grade, um, I had this moment where my, my father who never takes off from work. He's a classical, blue-collar, uh, a working-class immigrant person going to school to see his son, how he's doing. And the teacher said to him, he said, you know, John is good at math and art. And he kind of nodded, you know. 
The next day, I saw him talking to a customer at our tofu store, and he said, "You know, John's good at math." It was in a TED talk that you gave. I think this story encapsulates the general perception of art and artist. So I want to ask you, what led you to art later in life? How did you start creating art? I think back to my father's view on art at that time. Um, he had no education, uh, had no no money, no no wealth, and so. Art sounds very risky, and doing art is something that usually people who have money get to do. They get to take risks. So I think about how I was only able to engage in art when I was able to take risks, when I I had enough money to experiment. I think that's the foundation that I never really understood until now. You are familiar and recognized with the, your design work and your education work, and we will mention some of it uh, later. But I'm interested to hear maybe before we discuss those things, what is the difference between art and design, or maybe artists and designers? You know, I used to think about these things a lot, but I don't. <laughs> so it's kind of refreshing to kind of like remember how I felt about these things. I think that. Art is something that is wonderful because you do not have to have a motivation, whereas design is something much more pragmatic and it solves something. And so when you think about it, and this distinction to me still still holds true. And the problem is you have people who are designers who want to be artists, more conceptual, and you have some artists who want to make some money, so they'll do a little design. So then, the average person has a hard time understanding what is art and design because they're seeing like blends. They're seeing smoothies of art and design. So the regular culture gets confused too. So that's why most people cannot distinguish an artist or a designer. John, I have a question. If the role of the artist is to kind of form questions and to raise questions, and questions are essential to Innovation or challenging the status quo and the ability to actually progress forward in business. Why we don't see more collaborations between artists and maybe business companies? Well, there's so many kinds of artists, and there's so many kinds of businesses. Number one, there's sculptors, there's painters, there's printmakers, there's jewelry makers. There's all kind of artists. Number one, in business, there's Transportation, logistics, retail, energy. I mean, it just goes financial services. It goes like it's like a wrap almost. It can go forever. So to have an impact for innovation in business, you have to understand the business. So I think many artists don't understand the business that a business is in. Number one. Number two, because to a business, art is seen as more like a painting. It's hard to understand like why I would need a painting. And that's why what's interesting about the technology world, the world that makes these apps that we consume, it's the unique place where more technology companies need more design and art to build more sense of an experience. That is a new space that artists. Are collaborating with businesses and innovation is happening. 
new kind of culture is being made, new kind of business models are being created. But in tech, that is becoming much more common. But in the energy industry, no. In the container shipping industry, no. <laughs> if you're a sculptor, if you're a classical marble sculptor, no. But if you're a digital artist, huh. And if you're in tech, huh. a lot of innovation is happening at that border. You mentioned the fact that artists don't know business. And one of the things that you did is that you study computer science, then art, then an MBA. And I kind of wonder, what do you think about adding a layer of artistic training in thinking, not necessarily how to paint, but how to think about things into the MBA programs? Oh, there's quite a few MBA programs that are pursuing that, like whether it's like the popular ones like Yale or Harvard Business School, to art schools are creating MBAs as well, like California College of Arts, and I'm sure in Europe I've seen that as well. But when you were describing that, you made me think about how it's really good to be in one field because you learn it really well. And so like my life has been split across three worlds, the technology side, the art side, and the business side, I'm not good at any one of them. I am every day learning something new I missed in art and design or in technology engineering or in business. I'm like, ah, oh, I don't have enough time to live three lives. But I've had the advantage that I'm a kind of bridge that can connect those three together. And I would not give that up for anything. It's been a a real fun thing to be able to be uh, multilingual. Yeah. First of all, I think you are a very humble uh, person. Uh, the, your awards indicates that you are doing great, great things in intersections of those uh, disciplines. So, you know, a few days ago, I published a survey in the LinkedIn. And one of the questions that I asked if, could Leonardo da Vinci find a job in the 21st century work environment as a generalist that sits in so many intersections? And I kind of want to ask you, as, as a generalist that sits in this intersection, why it's harder for the generalist to actually find this place? And if we have uh, among us Leonardo type of thinking, can they find their place in this job environment? Well, when we think about a liberal arts education, which is um, more of a humanities, social science that's a very popular major, and I think many people would argue that it's very robust, that a general critical thinker can do well in this economy. I think that a, a great engineer can get a job, but an engineer who can do things like an artist or designer, uh, there are very few of them, but they're highly employable. They're called front-end engineers, people that are unusual because they can take the surface of this screen or uh, your phone screen and do wonderful magical things that no engineer could do and no artist or designer could do. So I think that people who are generalists are in demand. It's just that they have to find their way to that job because it's not listed in um, bold type or all caps. So, you know, you, you have experience working with a lot of people and you speak a lot about leadership and I, I want to speak with you about leadership. 
what would you recommend a manager that actually or a leader that meet this generalist that not necessarily are good at or excellent in one thing but actually good at few things yeah anyone who's good at many things has a potential to be a good manager because they have a diverse set of thinking skills and when you're leading a team the team members are generally very different from each other maybe someone is more abstract or someone is more concrete or someone really is chaotic and someone who carries different kinds of way of thinking can listen better to the person who is different contrast that with someone who can only work a certain way i know anyone on this podcast knows of a boss who only thinks a certain way and if you don't think their way in the us we say you you get on the highway so you're gone <laughs> so i think good good managers good leaders tend to be broad thinkers Uh, because they need to adapt to many kinds of people there is a kind of a certain assumption that we already have the generalist in the company and most of the time at the bottom of the pyramid what you need is executors for those generalists it's much harder to get into the uh, system so i wonder from a manager that is not necessarily generalist by herself what she can do or what will what will you tell her to look at when meeting generalists in a job interview well it depends i mean the interesting thing about the pandemic is it's made supply chain management a hot topic and the thing you learned about supply chain management is it's a way to optimize delivery of something from point a to point b optimization means reduce waste optimization means it arrives at point a at time x and it gets to point a point 1 at time x plus 1 and so everything is plotted out perfectly the problem with supply chain optimization is that if something is wrong in between then the whole supply chain breaks down so what experts are all saying is that we need more redundancy in the supply chain we need more kinds of ability to correct from errors which costs money which adds waste to the system it's not optimized but it's optimized for resilience so i think anyone who is a generalist uh, helps resilience because they can play different roles anyone who's too much of a specialist in this new economy needs to know how to work with other kinds of people otherwise they will make the system more brittle uh, less resilient yeah and that's what you do today no around resilience everything i do today i my whole space is resilience at the country scale at the company scale at the individual scale it's been entirely humbling because i've known nothing about it and had to learn very quickly <laughs> and i had no idea that how dangerous the world really is when you think about how we live every day and we're still alive it's pretty amazing you know i wanted to also uh, speak with you about uh, the concept of humanist technologist that you talk about what does it mean well that is a thought i had in the 90s in the 90s i was at mit and i felt that at mit technology was the most important that's cuz MIT the T stands for technology surprise 
And I wanted a way to center myself around not technology, but how the human part is the only part that matters. So in the 90s, I declared myself as a humanist technologist, someone who thinks about the human impact of technologies. I think today, in 2021, it's very common for many technologists to want to be humanist technologists. So it's kind of nice. I, I like how the world's become much more trying to be more human in the technology world. And what is the role of art in that, developing this humanist technologist? Uh, I think the role of art... If at all. There's a world of art education. There's the art market. And there's just people making art. If you think of the world of the art market, it's about what the market wants. So it has nothing to do with whether it's human or non-human. Put that in another, another bin. In the world of art education, it's very human, but it's very low technology. So it's like humanism forever, which is important to have in the world because then it will be preserved. When you think about art that doesn't fit education or commerce, there are people who are just experimenting. And when you look at the artists online who are experimenting, I think that they are able to exhibit this kind of humanist technologist feeling. They're mastering technologies. They're expressing themselves for no commercial gain or no education, blah, blah, blah. So I love visiting uh, the, the online world. I find new people all the time. Um, I love this NFT boom, which is part commerce, part timing, part everything. And to just see that people are curious to express in technology in 2021. So where do you go when you want to discover new art? Oh, I visit the feeds of different people that I find interesting. I was lucky in the 90s to be at this intersection of computer science and visual art. And so the, the graduate students that I worked with, they're doing amazing things. And their students are all doing amazing things. And everyone they hang out with does amazing things. So I just kind of like, I like stalk them all. It's <laughs> kind of like, what? what is that? What is that? What is that? And um, I'm glad to be able to understand the world through them. I think it's a great moment to mention to listeners to check your Twitter account. It's very poetic. You're famous for articulating thoughts in very few words. One of the aspects that you you also related to is the world of startups and entrepreneurs. And in 2014, you joined as a design partner to the famous venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins in Silicon Valley. And in your website, you say that you fell in love with startup there. Why? What made you fall in Why? love? I didn't understand how they exist. <laughs> I didn't understand the whole sequence, the Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D. It sounded so foreign. I thought, is it a vitamin? Vitamin B? Vitamin C? Oh, it's money. It's money dropped into the system like a video game for the company to get to continue. And the fact that they were betting on an idea and betting on a team, it felt very different than art, which is much less team-oriented. But it was very similar because it was always about risk, risk and reward. And so startup to me represents the ability for a team to take a risk to do something almost usually always impossible. So I think that is something I fell in love with. 
It was different than seeing art get made. And what was your role as a design partner? What does it mean? Oh, well, there's many, there's many design partners now. They work with the companies that the venture capital firm funds to improve their design function in relationship to product and engineering. They help recruiting. They help advising. Um, they're basically like a coach available from the VC. And when I was doing it, it was still kind of new, but now it's quite mature. I definitely can't do what everyone else is doing there right now. I think I, I'm a good starter. <laughs> it's very important. But, but you know what interests me to hear from you? What do you think made this change that suddenly venture capital firms understood that they need design partners among their financial operation industry experts? Well, it was mainly that startups needed people from design because you know, for a long time, nobody needed a computer. For a long time, a computer was a box on your desk and nobody used it. You were embarrassed to have a computer. But after 2009, when the iPhone blew up, everybody began to have a computer. Nerds weren't the only ones who had computers. And if you're not a nerd, you don't like to type commands into the little terminal window. You want to use it, make it easy for yourself. So the user experience boom happened because of the consumerization of computing. And many companies were not prepared for this. They were used to, it's called RTFM, read the bleeping manual, figure it out, get smart. That was the old way. But now it's like if like the Kardashians are using the app, they, they, they're a super intelligent family, but they would prefer to be easier to use, just like anybody would. So the demand increased for easier to use applications, and that's why design became important. One time I read an article, and the main idea behind it was that uh, entrepreneurs are the artists of the business world. And it spoke about the relationship between entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs and artists. And you work with both for many, many years. Uh, oh, and you're right. Oh, and, interesting. And you already started to kind of speak about one similarity, risk and reward. And I'm, when I read your book, I think it was the law of simplicity. Um, it inspired me to write an article about the similarities between artists and entrepreneurs. I really liked how you spoke about the fact that you need to roll your sleeves and go into the hard work. And there were many things that were uh, similar. And I'm, I'm interested now that you have been in these worlds for many years, what are some similarities that you see or differences that you see between entrepreneurs and artists beside the risk and reward, which I think it's very relevant? It's true. I have lived longer than I did 20 years ago. So I, I've, I've known different people for longer. I thought that was so, I was like, whoa, you're right. I've spent a lot of time with pure artists, spent a lot of time with pure business people. Huh, interesting. I never thought about that. Anything I said in the past, I believe, is terribly incorrect. So, <laughs> so I, I, I have to go look at back like what I said before. Um, in 2021, I do believe that a classical artist is very different than classical entrepreneur in that the stakes are much lower for an artist. The stakes are much higher for a, an entrepreneur in one sense. 
for the artist, the stakes are higher for their own personal well-being, their psychological well-being. They are putting their psychological well-being on the line in a vulnerable, vulnerable way. It's very different than an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur can say, oh, my name is on the line. That's very different than an artist making work. It's very personal when an artist is working. When you're making a business, yeah, you know, like people will make fun of you if you fail, but it's very different than making art. So I have a deep respect for artists who make art. It's very different than entrepreneurs who make companies. It's very different. And in which way they are similar? What's similar is that they are, well, I'll go back to the risk. Well, I wouldn't even go to the reward. The, it's the ability to take on risk because of one of two factors. One is you have nothing to lose. And number two is you have everything to lose. And I think that people who want to bet go to the latter. And people who are just sort of like young and audacious go to the former. And both patterns are the same. They're taking on risk. And it's not that they're afraid. They're not, they're not, they are not afraid. They all have to be courageous in some way, but slightly, slightly daft. While you were in Ecclaner uh, Perkins, you also launched the Design and Tech Report. Um, and for me, one astonishing data point was that, at least the first one, that 20% of the back then global unicorns had co-founders or founders that came from creative disciplines. And if creative backgrounds can build such strong companies, why we are still biased toward these profiles when they come to raise money, when they come to build companies? Oh, uh, I think the simple answer is that those creative people had also become hybrids. They were creative people slash business people, or they were creative people slash engineers. I think that's what's special about those people. So if you show up and like, hey, I have a degree in sculpture, fund my company, it's highly unlikely because they don't have the ability to build the culture of a technology company. That's the difference. And one of the things that uh, kind of uh, happened, I remember that I listened to an interview with uh, Brian Chesky, um, and he spoke about how the fact that he actually had a design degree was difficult for him to raise funds at the beginning when they worked on Airbnb. And you were, that's probably uh, part of the, your uh, former life as the president of the Rhode Island School of Design, actually the school where uh, Brian Chesky and Joe Gabia um, studied. And if, if at all, which kind of uh, makes the question, what makes creative profile potential entrepreneurs beside the fact that they have the business acumen? Yeah, well, I think that, well, there's always going to be bias against people who are creative because it means they're risky. So I think that's, you have to accept that. If you want, if you, if you studied accounting instead or finance, you are low risk to give money to. So if you want to be a low risk profile, you study finance. It's easy. If you want a high risk profile, then, you know, if you have an arts background, that's a high risk profile. I think it's important to note, though, that both Brian and Joe share with me how they learned business by doing the PR and business for the basketball team. I say this because most people who study something if they engage in clubs, like extracurricular to their studying, 
the data shows that students who don't spend time in classes and spend time in clubs, whether sports or like, you know, play or any kind of like extra club, they are the ones who become successful. So if I were to rewind this perception around creative people, if you're a creative person who is an extrovert and who loves networking with other people who are not in the creative space, uh, you love interesting problems, then you're a low risk to be invested in. Does that make sense? It's like if you're a pure creative person who just wants to paint and close the door, you will get no money. <laughs> no one will invest in your idea. Sorry. So now that you said that, it's kind of made me think about the first question that I asked you about generalists and actually maybe how maybe these clubs actually allows you to experiment with different disciplines, not necessarily studying them in depth, but definitely engaging the experience. Yeah. No, there's, there's data that showed something like 80-something percent of entrepreneurs engaged in what's called extracurricular. So you can be a finance major and you're in clubs and you're now in drama club. So now you're more, you're basically to your point, more well-rounded. And I wonder what, what is the one thing that you learned at your time at uh, RISD that maybe surprised you about this? Um, about business? As, as the president of the school, if there is something that surprised you uh, learning about uh, students. Oh, because well, you see, I, like very creative people, RISD is a very respected school for yeah. design and art in the U.S. Well, two things. You know, when I joined, I heard that the students would move in on one day with their parents, coming in cars from all over the United States, and they would line up for blocks and blocks. And I was like, "Wow, what happens?" Well, we moved them into the dorms. I said, "Oh, I want to do that." So I showed up in a T-shirt and like, I'm ready. And I was moving the students in. It was great. And then I would talk to them. And the parents will always say, you're the president? I'm like, I'm the pre- I really am the president. <laughs> Welcome. And I would say like, so why are you sending your, your son or daughter here? And nine times out of 10, they would say, well, not to be a designer or an artist, uh, to be an innovator. And I noticed this over and over, number one. And number two, I noticed that people who've been creative all their lives, they are constrained by normal education. Maybe art class in the United States is like half an hour a month or something. So once you're in a real art school environment, it's 24-7 art. I noticed that the students were the happiest they could ever be in life. It's like, you know, like a horse and the horse is in a small pen and suddenly they can roam the countryside. So going back to your point about you know, stereotypes of artists, I would always tell everybody that uh, because I would go to a move-in and I would show up in shorts you know, and a t-shirt and it would all be done. I'm sweaty and I'm like leaving. And uh, we would um, have the, the city police, we'd hire them to manage the kind of traffic. And so I was leaving and then one of the policemen says, hey, you. I said, yes, officer. Are you the president? And I said, <laughs> yes, sir, I'm the president. <laughs> and he said, you know, you know, I've got to tell you, like, on any given evening, we are breaking up parties, like parties at Brown or Providence College or all the local colleges. We're breaking up parties all the time. We never break up parties at your school. Instead, 
we drive around at night and we see all the lights of your building on at 4 a.m. What are they doing? And I said, well, they're, they're the happiest they've ever been to get to make work with people who are like-minded and who love to make work. And that's what they're doing. And they were like, wow. So it changed this idea that creative people are not hardworking. It showed how you give them the chance, they'll work harder than anyone else. So I want to ask you a question for, and go back to something you mentioned, because you said that art is something that is being done alone. But when you think about it, even Picasso had the Banda de Picasso. He needed this influence and to work with Brock next to each other in order to create. And you just mentioned that those students, these students kind of worked until 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. or all night next to each other. So how do you look at collaboration over here? Well, I, I have a way when people ask me this question, I say, well, you know, software engineers tend to be introverts. So artists tend to be introverts too, but they like to introvert together. <laughs> so to answer your question, well, they may not want to team, but they want to be together and they see the value of being together to learn together. It's a bit different. It's, it's interesting that you said that the parents told you that I want my kid to be an innovator. That's why I send him to an art and design school, which is a bit surprising for me because that parents associate art and design with innovation. Why is that? Uh, well, I think, um, I think we're lucky to have people like Brian and Joe to make Airbnb who really kind of like popularize this idea that you can innovate in business like in culture. I mean, Airbnb is like a culture technology company. So I think that was a big part of it. And also in the, in the 90s, everything Apple has done to elevate this idea of creativity and commerce. So I think some parents were able to see it that way. But I got to tell you, like, um, I remember I was, um, I was in a hotel lobby that's kind of fancy, and I was working in the lobby, and I could hear people walking around and there's, it was all marble with lights, chandeliers, and you know, it was kind of fancy. And then I could hear this, um, this young woman, maybe she's like eight years old. And then she's saying, you know, mommy, mommy, come look, come look. And the mother's like, come on, let's go. We have to go. We have to go. We have to go. But I was looking at her and she said, mommy, mommy, look, the chandelier's light, you know, hits this thing. And it's dispersed all over this, this beautiful marble. It's so beautiful, mommy. And she's like, oh, come on, come on. We have to go. We have to go. We have to go. But I was thinking this young woman has the gift, has the gift to see it. And so that's, it's a gift. It's also a kind of curse because most people will not understand what she's seeing. And so I think that some parents are able to see that as the ability to see around corners. And some parents will see it as, oh, you don't get it. So some the parents I met were the ones who had students who were lucky because they could see that as a positive thing. You know, you mentioned that um, maybe it's, it's not the accurate number, but maybe you get half an hour a month in arts in the U.S. system. And it leads me to the questions about the movement from STEM to STEAM, from science, technology, engineering, and math to science, technology, engineering, art and math, a movement that uh, you were a big part of it to bring art into the uh, studies. And you were saying 
and over here I quote, art and design are positioned to transform our economy in the 21st century like science and technology did in the last century. Yeah, well, that's actually how I felt the year before I joined RISD, actually, because I had seen the power of technology post-World War II, and I was wondering, along this humanist technology line, how could that change? How could another university reposition art and design the way that MIT did with technology? That's why I joined RISD, and I remember I spent three years in the U.S. Congress lobbying for STEM to STEAM. And today, STEAM is a very common acronym. So I'm excited to have been a little part of that. First of all, congratulations that it became so common. Well, the best thing about being common is uh, I have nothing to do with it now. So there we go. Why you found it uh, important to take it? Why did I find Why did you find it important to spend three years of your time in the Congress to promote this idea? Well, I believed in it, and I still believe in it. Uh, but... Going back to how what I measure success as I measure success as has it happened, and I have nothing to do with it, and so I look at things that I've done in the past. You were asking like you 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 come across as someone who's done some stuff, but you don't seem to notice it and it's because um do you know that um saying by uh the director uh Inyaritu, uh from Birdman? No, share it with oh. me, please. Inyarita has this, he talked about his father and how his father um, really kind of ingrained in him this notion of success. And it was something like, if you feel success, you must spit it out like it's poisoned. <laughs> and I love it. It's like, I was like, oh yeah, that's how I feel. So I feel like it's poison because once you feel like you did something, it's it's going to prevent you from from finding something more. So for me, I feel lucky to have touched a lot of things and I want to touch more things. And the more time I spend remembering them, the more time I stay stuck. And, you know, it's very, very interesting, this comment that you uh, just said, because you know what I feel is that artists, at least that's what I saw, is that every time they succeed, they move to the next thing because they are kind of avoiding success, because it means that then they will stay the same. And staying the same is not good. Um, for, for some people, not yeah. everyone, right? I'm talking generally at, at, at the art space. It's a space that pushes you to be original, because otherwise uh, you, you are not yeah. having a value in a way in the market, if I would say that. Uh. And I remember Miro... Uh, when Miro couldn't understand why his painting are being sold for so much money. So he started to paint on stones and bones. And there was a period that he said, I want to murder the painting. And kind of all the time uh, moved to the next thing, to the next thing, next experiments. Artists, as you just said, kind of see success. Yes, it's important for them to have success in order to be able to continue doing what they love, but it doesn't mean to do the same thing for the rest of their life. No, I'm so glad I get to speak with you today, Nir. It's like uh, you're reminding me how there's a kind of hope that there's an original thought out there, and there's a discovery that there is no original thought out there. But it's sort of like, my friend calls it the the, the rubber ladder of success. 
You know, you keep pulling and you keep pulling and looking. It's a desire to try and find it, to find the original that I think uh, some artists look for, hope for. It's very human. It's irrational. You know, Gerhard Richter said, art is the highest form of hope. So, Whoa, that's a, that's a deep one. <laughs> well, I think that because you're the, you're the artian, um, there, I think every field has their wonderful quotes, whether it's art or design or science or business or whatever. I, I think it's kind of a, a religion of hope, curiosity. It's a good thing. So it leads me to the last question, because you also uh, speak a lot about uh, leadership, and you also wrote a book about uh, leadership, redesigning leadership. And you made it in a visual that you have the traditional leadership and the creative leadership. What is the difference between traditional leadership and creative leadership? Why do we need creative leadership? Wow, I haven't thought about this in a long time. I'm taking you back in I, time with my questions. Back in time. I don't, I don't remember that person. <laughs> um, but I'll, I will bring him out of the closet because he, he has to answer your question, sort of. Um, I think I, I implicitly heard or knew that the computational era was happening, that change, radical change, whether it's pandemics, you know, viruses, vaccines, CRISPR, VR, AR. I've been living in this world of technology for so long that I know that change has been so rapid. And a classical leader was a popular way to live as a leader when there was very little change. Like next 10 years, it's going to be the same. Next 20 years, it's going to be the same. In the technology era, everything is not the same the next year or even like a half a year. So the creative leader is much more agile. They're more open to change. They're able to adapt. They are not necessarily more humble, but they understand that they don't have all the data. And the only way to get data is to listen. So I think of the classical leader as someone who doesn't know that technology is transforming our world, but a creative leader is ready for this new digitally transformed world. You just said... In order to get the data, you need to listen. And some of the business leaders will say, we don't need to listen. We just need to collect the data from all the channels that we have and analyze them. Well, so I spent six years writing the How to Speak Machine book. I spent six years trying to understand technology. And what I finally understood, I took everything I learned about in Silicon Valley and all the business world stuff that I've been doing, and I realized... This technology stuff is strange. It's like an alien life form. David Bowie said this about the internet in 1999. Amazing video. Amazing. I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg. I think the potential of what the internet is going to do to society, both good and bad, is unimaginable. I think we're actually on the cusp of something exhilarating and terrifying. It's just a tool, though, isn't it? No, it's not. I took that inspiration to describe the alien. The alien is larger than anything we can ever imagine. The alien never gets tired like a human being. The alien can show up in your living room half-finished, and it'll finish in your living room. It'll get incomplete and then grow. The alien can have like a wire to listen to What's happening in the Arshin studio right now? 
this new technology is so different than our previous era that the leader who said that before is no longer going to be around because they don't know how to speak machine. And that's the, your latest book that is available on Amazon, and we will make sure to add it to the show notes. Well, thank you. Um, well, it's, it's a book that I, I didn't have any time to talk about, but I think about it now as like, everything I know about technology is in the book. People always ask like, oh, how does the cloud work? Or how does AI work? Oh, it's in there. But I wrote it for myself because I didn't understand it myself. And, you know, I think, oh, I remember now, I was with an artist, art teacher, going back to art education. And um, I used to, you know, visit a lot of uh, art teachers because I was advocating for STEAM. And so I talked to so many art teachers. So, so many art teachers hated STEAM. They're like, oh, I don't need any STEM. STEM is bad. And some would be like, oh, thank goodness you're talking about STEAM because we need budget from our art class. Anyways, I was at one event and there was an art teacher pulled me aside. He wanted to talk to me. I said, oh, what is it? What is it? What is it? He said, you know, if there's one thing I learned about teaching art is when you teach students art, some of them try to make what you tell them to make. And I, you know, I've been teaching for like 30 years now. And I began looking at all the art my students made. And I realized the art that set apart the best students is it was never about like what it looked like or felt like. It was the result of the student's pursuit to understand something. And every kind of art where an artist tries to understand something is very different than an artist making something. So to me, that book is, <laughs> some people hate it because like, what does it say? It wasn't for them. It was for me. And through it, I've learned what David Bowie described. And I feel more empowered to make better business decisions today than I ever did, you know, five, 10 years ago. Making things helps you learn things. And I think artists know that. And that's why I think your podcast is important because it reminds ourselves that consuming is easy, creating is not, whether you're making a question or making a solution. It's so much harder. John, I think there is no better way to end this podcast with this inspiration from you um, that we need to remember. Yeah, consuming is easy. Creating is difficult. So I will just have to say thank you very much. Uh, really, I know that you are a very busy uh, person and I really appreciate you taking uh, the time to chat with me. Thank you, Nir. I, I didn't know all these things that you're describing, so I'm really happy to. Thank you. Great. Thanks, John. People like John inspire me. His ability to lead initiatives that seem obvious today like the humanist technologist, like a design partner in a venture capital, or pushing for integrating the arts into STEM is impressive. When I listen to him, I want to take action. What about you? Special thanks to Abigail Dyson, our previous intern who didn't give up and managed to have this interview, and to Marina, John's executive assistant who gave us the opportunity to have this podcast. Until next time, be creative or encourage someone to be one, your kid, your friend, your spouse, your neighbor. Have a wonderful week. I will be waiting for you here with another episode 
of the RTN podcast. With me, Nir Hindi. We are producing our podcast without any help. So if you find this podcast valuable for you, I will be super grateful if you can help us spread the word by leaving a rating or a review. It will take you less than a minute and it's really, really valuable for us. Special thanks to Daniel Duran who mixed and mastered this episode. If you are interested in working with us and building your innovation capabilities with artists, I recommend you to check our workshops and training, all available on our website. Remember that you can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All our previous shows are available on our website, www.theartian.com slash podcast. We can also be found on our LinkedIn page, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And as I always say, yes, we do have Twitter. You can reach us directly via email at podcast at theartian.com. Once again, thanks for listening.